This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Magna. And I'm Luc-Olivier Dumeble. And our topic this week is... Our fourth annual WDC extravaganza. Awesome. Uh, once again, a reminder that uh, we will be releasing an episode about Shinkai Makoto's 2016 movie Your Name on August 2nd. Uh, so go watch the subtitled version. You can find it for digital purchase or rental on iTunes or YouTube. And uh, that will be our next episode. Yeah, so you have two weeks to go watch it. And a uh, small reminder too, because I for- I'm not sure you forgot about it, but you did mention you need to watch the sub version. Yes. Reminder, sub version. You can watch the dub version after, but sub version if you can only want it, watch it once. Yes. Okay. No follow up for this year, this week, Nick? No. Wow. That's good. Then let's jump into the topic for tonight. Uh, for, so for the, current listeners and the regular listeners excuse me you will be used that around the after a couple of weeks or like the next week after the wwdc we plan to do our uh wwdc extravaganza which is yannick and i will go through two sessions each so four sessions that we strongly suggest that you watch uh we tend to try to go uh outside the main tracks of the conference just because you might expect that the big topics you can find a lot of information about it some years we do, some years we don't, depending on what we're interested. Uh, I think, Yannick, this year you're a bit more on the typical tracks, which is totally fine. But as I mentioned, uh, this is the fourth episode uh, for f- in four years. So the first one was episode 66 for uh, Dub Dub 2017. We had episode 92 for Dub Dub 2018, which I attended, kind of. Uh, and with uh, that's the when I went to San Jose, but not really attended. So I think I spent like two hours at Dub Dub, but I uh, was at Altconf and uh, Dub Dub uh, 2019 with episode 114. The main reason I bring it up because I'll start with my first session for tonight, and this is for me a good topic and a common topic in those episodes is I always usually talk about the car stuff sessions especially with the uh, last few years of recent addition to carplay and i guess for now and the next few years you can add another car topic to these and it is session uh, 10006 introducing car keys uh, but before i go on uh, the session numbers are quite weird this year uh, i'm used to the uh, uh, like 101 and 200 and 300 and like out of up until like 700 or 800 and now it, it seems to go in to be in like the 10,000s for some reason that they decide to change this so it's quite fun but again uh, you'll find a link, a link to all those sessions that we'll be mentioning in the show notes with those funky numbers so good let's start with this session introducing car key so as we discuss uh, in follow-up of the last episode uh, i was mentioning that car key uh, macromers had a great guide about car key uh, because that was a feature that apple announced in ios 13.5 without really saying too much about it just saying like you know you can use your phone to unlock your car uh, since they introduced that before wwdc i was expecting some of the sessions uh, that we've seen in the past uh, for some of those uh, car related technology many are driven around carplay but uh, now they release this session that is regarding the technology. And obviously, you might say, like, it's a bit weird that they talk about car key in, uh, in uh, app development conference. But let's not forget, Apple is full of different things. And they want to talk to different people that are interacting with their tools and their software. And one example, example of 
this is car manufacturers. So, so up to this point, car manufacturer, the main thing they could do with Apple technology is uh, embed, make sure that their car infotainment system could use CarPlay. And if you go to our back catalog of episodes and to go to some of the 2016 and 2017 CarPlay sessions, uh, they were not aimed at app developers, but they were aimed at car manufacturers so they can adopt those technologies. So what can CarPlay, a uh, car, CarPlay, what can CarKey do for you uh, as a car manufacturer? It is more or less a way to allow your car drivers, your car purchasers to unlock, lock and start your car using a digital key stored in, inside your iPhone or Apple Watch. A uh, couple of nice things about it. It is because it's based on the wallet technology. It is deletable via iCloud. Uh, one thing different than the wallet, I guess it's more like kind of the passbooks. Uh, they are shareable. Uh, also, it is uh, agnostic to any radio technology. So right now, the current iteration of this technology is based on NFC with some caveats. Uh, and they're already working on the next step, which was one of one of the two or three mentioned that we had about the uh, U1 chip, uh, which is based on ultra wideband technologies. And last but not least, if mention on top of that that it's built with the wallet app and the wallet technology for car credit cards and it is also working with power reserve which means that if your phone batteries dies you can just use your phone still uh whether you go in a transit or if you're a lucky 2021 bmw 540i owner because as we uh, recently learned that's mainly the first car that will get this technology there's three important things with the car key framework, and those are the owner pairing, the transaction, and the server interfaces. So as its name suggests, uh, owner pairing is the process of you buy your car and you need to pair it to your phone. Um, and that has to be applied one way because it can, it is really to make sure that the, uh, car manufacturer can prove to Apple that this person owned these cars. Uh, you can initiate this special pairing through a car manufacturer app that you might already have or through a welcome email containing a special link to start the process. Because the idea is that the car gets a ping, special like ping to trigger the pairing, the ownership pairing. And also the idea is if your car is, uh, and with those tech you'll see it, it entails uh a remote connection or like having a link to the car manufacturer servers. It is important to also, Apple strongly suggests that you update your car infotainment system UI to indicate that, yeah, the car is like received this pairing notification. It's happening so that it helps the new owner to tell them what to, to do. Because the car also have an NFC reader, you could just put your phone on the NFC reader inside the car and that should allow the user to trigger this ownership. Uh, this owner pairing without having, but not without having, but without having this trigger either from the app or from this welcome email after you buy the car and, and not waiting for the car to receive kind of this type of ping just from the manufacturer saying, Hey, somebody's trying to uh, pair it to you. Once this process is done, as I mentioned, uh, the rest of the management goes through the wallet app. The next point that Apple mentioned is what they call transactions. And depending on the type of uh, the type of action you want to do, uh, those are different type of uh, of transactions. They go into more details in the session, and we'll we'll see some of them. But of course, uh, 
uh, some of the exact details about the payload, you will find them in the sessions, which I will strongly invite you to watch. Uh, if you are interested about like data payload and then some security elements about such, uh, some more uh, extra security elements that I say I level right now in this uh, summary of this session. But uh, in the first iteration of the car key framework and car key implementation to cars, uh, Apple suggests that you have two NFC readers in your car. One in the door handles, used only for unlocking the car, or even could be lock the car, like you exit and it's unlocked and you tap your phone and it locks. Usually they also have buttons on the handle, but that could be used to. And the other one is on the dashboard. Sadly, one of the main downsides with this first iteration of this technology is because it's based on NFC, your phone needs to stay on top of the dashboard reader to make sure that like, it's kind of a car key and it's not as kind of like uh, smart as our current dumb car keys, which is based on more re like longer range video frequencies. So the phone really needs to stay near the NFC reader. As I mentioned at the starting of this uh, summary, express mode is enabled for both uh, those types of transaction and also on by default. So yes, you can disable it if you you don't you want to keep something more secure. That like you, somebody you lose your phone, it goes out of power, then somebody finds it and try to unlock a car. You don't want to do that. You don't want to allow that. So you, you can disable it. One important point is after. Um, Pairing, and we'll come back about the uh, exchanges that happen between Apple servers, the car manufacturer servers. But after the pairing, both the car and the iPhone can be fully online and still allow unlock, lock, and start and start, which is quite nice because you can imagine you're in the middle of the woods, you have no LTE signal. A lot of the current apps you can see, uh, a lot of the nice feature, like say for on Teslas or even BMWs, like remote start requires an LTE connection, uh, first from the phone you trigger and also where the car is located. So having that allows you to makes your phone act like what you have in your uh, in your pocket already. Kind of this those quote unquote not too dumb key that uh, you might already have. And last but not least, and you'll see this is quite recurring while Apple is explaining their technology um, throughout this session. But every time there's a there's a place when you can talk about privacy, they do make sure that they talk about privacy. And as you might expect, the first thing they say is Apple doesn't know about X. Apple doesn't have the data about Y. And this example here is Apple doesn't know when you do a transaction, whether it's unlock, lock, start the car, the keys in your phone. And they don't really care. The last point about the, the three important things of this framework is server interfaces. Because you could, in theory, stop at uh, owner pairing and transaction. For owner pairing, you have some server-to-server -server components. But after that, like I said, everything can be offline. Um, so there's functionality that will require some server-to-server uh, -server com uh, communication. And the main one is, is key sharing. A key sharing can only be done via messages, which to me was quite interesting. Apple knows that they have end-to-end -end encryption in their messaging system. I'm eager to see if that's going to change uh, or that they'll allow you to use a typical share sheet. So if you send it through, or like I'd say WhatsApp, it still works. Uh, but they were quite clear. They'd say it's done. key sharing is done via messages. Uh, 
the way the cryptography is done doesn't need doesn't require the car to be online to share a key with somebody so if your car is in the middle of the wood and you want to give access to somebody and they are on a wi-fi let's say uh with their phone you can remotely send them a key and the car will accept it with the way encryption and cryptography is done of course again apple is saying we don't know when you share a key with somebody uh we don't know who they are i uh, would just don't know anything about that so whether you share it with your mom to your i guess your i don't know i don't know what would be uh, problematic for apple who cares you share it with the president with tim cook only tim cook knows that you share the key with him and that's it, not apple i guess um and that and that we'll see again i think is also recurring later on when they talk about some of the uh, uh some of their management they don't know and and that to me i think they're kind of reemphasizing uh that with wallet is more or less the same thing they don't really know when you use your uh, your your card and the only thing that i don't think they know but like maybe the card uh terminal will know is that you presented a card they might not know if it's apple uh apple pay or not some do some don't so i think it's related to the same technology the other thing that the manufacturer need to think when they want to enable key sharing um oh no i should fix that typo uh it's that not that they need to support or not support key sharing but they need to define whether they want to have a different access level so again the example they're saying is you give unlimited like unrestricted access to the car recent cars in the past i would say 10 years when it got more smart uh they started to put more kind of those teen modes i have uh, i have this in my car i can program one key to be uh, locked to certain features not go over a certain speed not raise the volume too much so a manufacturer can create those access level uh, and i would say sadly but i wonder if that could be something you want to do uh like more customized down the road where you could and that's not that's not a feature but i think something that they could do and i think would be nice to do is let's say uh you have an access level that is unlocked like we can do whatever you want with a car so let's say i trust yannick i give him access to my car i give uh, him access to everything but another friend i don't want to give them all accesses let's say i don't want them to go above like 60 kilometers per hour and i want them to raise the volume but for another friend I don't mind if they they blast music out loud of my car, but I want them to have access to go to the like to seventy kilometers per hour. Uh, this is something that is not available, and I wonder if Apple is already thinking about this because a lot of those functionality, those restrictions inside the car can be like programmed with like you decide they allow certain uh, criterias or certain like functionalities to be limited, and you decide what you want on and off per key so you could end up by uh getting two or four kids depending on the number of kids you have and they all have a uh, different uh, access level so we'll see if that's coming soon but right now uh the level needs to be defined by the manufacturer and they are static so you choose by for example they were given an example full access or the car can go above 100 kilometers power and the volume needs to be maximum 50 percent uh, all the key management, all of those sharing, like all the, those configuring the sharing and sending just before sending it, all of that is happening inside the wallet app. Of course, because it's inside the wallet app and that's the, the what I meant by deletable via iCloud. If you trigger loss mode on your phone, you can remotely wipe your keys. And also they, they know that 
the people that have the budget to buy a new car might have a lot of budget to buy a new phone every year so they've already considered how to market from like from the first owner to from an old phone to a new phone without like breaking this pairing because now we'll move to the system architecture talking a bit about the cryptography for those keys actually before that oh yes for sure I think it's kind of funny because it's probably using the same technology that they use to migrate virtual Suica cards uh, from an old iPhone to a new iPhone uh, via iCloud. Oh, really? Yeah. They don't go into too much details. Uh, they just say they have an easy way to migrate it to a new user. But as we'll see just in a bit, it is important that it, the first owner have a, has a special cryptographic key that is stored into the uh, secure enclave. And that, when you share another, to share a key with somebody, it, you get the kind of derived key from the original key. So that's why I feel that there's again this process that you need to not lose the key because it's not stored on iCloud. It is only stored inside your phone. Yeah, I think what what happens with Suica is very similar where like you have to unbind your card when you're going to like switch to your new phone and then it picks up like the the key and the the card from uh from iCloud and then it restores it and then iCloud throws away the key that they had and then it sort of goes back to how it was before or something to that effect i don't know the exact technical details but there is a process like this because technically the suica card can only be on one device at a time huh that's true i forgot about that i didn't mention anything about uh this type of limitation but i wouldn't be i would be surprised that the owners like the key itself can only be shared between the owner's iPhone and Apple Watch. Uh, but if they have different user, uh, they didn't mean that no, if a, the same owner have different iPhones, they don't mention too much about this. And it wouldn't surprise that you need to share a key with your other phone uh, for that to work. Have they confirmed that the phone and the watch can have it at the same time? Uh, they did not. Not that right. I recall. I don't have any notes about this. So I'm curious to figure out if it's going to be like Suica, where you have to choose one or the other and it stays that way. And you can transfer it back and forth whenever you want, but it can only be on one at a time. Or if you can have like a clone on both. Mm, yeah. If it is a transfer, it's the type of thing that uh, I know some car manufacturers, they, they have those uh, kind of... Uh, they went Some of them went with products where you can leave your traditional key in the car, but you have some kind of like smart bracelet that you can use to open i think that was jaguar that was doing that that you put your key in the it was f4 suv so in the trunk and uh the brass the bracelet is only for opening the trunk huh. so then you can pick up the key and then start your car uh so they were like touting that as a feature for like outdoor people or like you go on the mountain bike you don't want to get your keys and lose your keys and stuff like that or, you know, like, I don't know, you go kayaking and there's a risk that they get wet and or yeah. lost in the lake, stuff like that. A couple of small points about the uh, system architecture. Uh, lots of, I think, even me, like, even for me, like, all of those, like, uh, certificate and, like, uh, <laughs> AES and elliptic curve crypto is used. They were throwing a lot of those, lots of terms I've used about good security about for certificate and cryptocurrency, of course. The fact that it can work offline is based on a public key infrastructure, meaning that you have a public and a private key and you have certs and all that fun stuff related to the server integration. Uh, they were talking about, okay, you as a car manufacturer needs to 
uh, create a related search based on the Apple root search for car manufacturers and lots of search to make sure everything is safe and that you uh, confirm who's who. Uh, and a bit of that is from the car key itself. Uh, I strongly suggest that you go watch those sessions because I'm sure I will butcher it. So if you're the type of uh, tech nerd that is really into crypto, I strongly suggest you go watch them because it was uh, great details. They also go through the flows and the data exchange between, let's say you do um, uh, you do the pairing. So all, all, all the actors, so the phone, your car, the car manufacturer's backend, the Apple backend, because again, uh, to do some of the, also for the key sharing, it goes through, uh, to iMessage. So there's stuff there. Even if they, they say they don't see it because they don't know about your private key. Uh, the private key is only stored in your, strange enough, they call it secure element. And I was like, whoa, whoa wait, that's not the name of the, 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 the thing you call, you've been calling it for years. They always said secure and clear in Apple, even in dubbed videos, but it seems that this year, they were saying secure element in parenthesis SE everywhere. And I was like, okay, at least it's the same initials, so SE and element enclave, but they were using element. Secure element is what they call it on Android, but it's not like huh. that. It's just a generic version of what they were calling the secure enclave to sound fancy. I guess, I guess because I was really thrown aback when they mentioned the secure element. I was like, oh, are they talking about the secure enclave here? Oh, well. But uh, the just two concepts I want to bring up about that before I move away from this topic. Uh, the key itself, like I said, is a public key uh, infrastructure. is based on public key infrastructure. So you do end up with a private key that is stored in your secure element. And your public key is exported as a X509 certificate uh, to make sure to and to be sent to the car. So that's where they know the pair. Like, okay, this private key goes with this public search. So they, the car is able to know which phone is your real phone to unlock the car? Uh, again, I mentioned they mentioned the, the flow of data between Apple's uh, servers, the automaker servers, and the car and the iPhone for owner pairing, all the transactions, key sharing, uh, whether key sharing is online, offline. Um, because of those sorts, that's the nice part about key sharing is because you kind of generate another key based on your own key, and the car as the public key side of things it kind of know without talking to the car manufacturer backend that this key is from somebody you shared with. So then it can store it, it can store it on, on its side in the meantime before it pings back home and say, hey, is there any new people that can have access to this car based on those keys? Also related to that, one good element is you decide who has access to it and you decide when they stop having access to it. So revocation happens on your phone or also in the car's UI. So you can be in the car, park in the garage, like, oh crap, I forgot to remove the access. This only suggests that you have a UI in your car system to do so. Uh, I mentioned the different certificate and the exchange between Apple car manufacturers. There's a lot of like, a long, a while ago, I was watching some security expert talk about the problems of our current like wireless car keys. Uh, and they were mentioning quite the, broadly that one of the good way first of all we do have the tech to make our car more secure we already use that day in day out for the internet and https and again it's a bold statement no, not bold statement but it might be more like generic statement 
for my limited understanding of all the cryptographic element of HTTPS and TLS and all that fun stuff, this kind of reminds me of that here. And that's why, again, I'm sure my security friends will make fun of me because I am uh, like taking shortcuts. But it felt to me that Apple, as expected, did their own like due diligence on this. And they are basing it on what people were saying would make for more secure keys. They're kind of like going to the same architecture that would uh, improve car key technologies. And I'm quite glad that they're doing that. Related to that, and that comes up a bit later in the session, they are talking about the fact that they are a good partner. You know, we are part of the Car Connectivity Consortium. Uh, if you didn't know them, by the way, they were the people or the consortium that made Mirrorlink, which is kind of the CarPlay, not CarPlay for Android phones that were before uh, Android Auto. They mentioned that they were part of the Digital Key Spec 2.0. This one is the one that is currently live for car manufacturer that is based on NFC. And Apple is working end in end with this consortium to build version 3.0. And that one is based on they say the ultra wideband, but of course the tech they put in the U1 chip. Lastly, I want to talk about radio technologies. As I mentioned, two, only one is available right now, uh, NFC. They also have an announcement on top of NFC called Enhance Contactless Protocol, which the phone can know in advance which and what the NFC reader expects. So the NFC reader, I don't know, they don't, they don't go in too much detail, but it is mentioned that the NFC reader can emit what type of key or NFC tag it is expecting, whether it's like, say, a permanent terminal or a car, and also which brand of cars. So the idea is you wouldn't have to select which key you want to use because of this tech. You just tap your phone on your car handle and it would magically work. That's of course that's what Apple's saying. We'll have to see in the while how it works. Uh, and the first thing when I they mentioned, I was like, okay, what if I have two BMWs? How can it know which is which? So uh, I'm wouldn't really be surprised that it works. Let's say if you have a Toyota and a BMW, uh, but if you have two BMW because you're uh, a rich person with uh, 2021 BMWs and recent iPhones, I'm eager to see what people have to say about that. I mean, it could be something as simple as like a weird two-factor auth thing that you do where you just say like, or like you have a, a car ID and the thing that it emits that tells it, well, use the key for this car ID and boom. It could be. They, again, they, they just mentioned which brand of car. Uh, I, I don't think they strongly suggest that the car emits a uh, unique identifier for privacy reasons. Uh, I know they do mention that the phone won't do it for sure. Uh, so tough luck for you if you want to track them, uh, track the users. Uh, Apple won't do that for the users, but that could be a possibility. They didn't really mention two details. Again, they use this section to reemphasize the ultra wideband technology, saying that's the future. It's way better. Your phone, your watch can stay on your wrist without moving. Your phone can stay in your purse, in your backpack. And you don't need to be physically close to an NFC reader hidden on the car. Uh, and that's where they see the things going. And to be honest, uh, while I understand that they use NFC, to me, that will be a big regression of what you have yeah. right now. Because like with my last two cars, with the current one and uh, the Fiesta before, 
the key stays in my pocket. Uh, for sure, like what I realized throughout the years is because I live in an apartment building, there's a couple of locked doors to go to the garage, so I still need to get the key out of my pocket. Uh, so when I'm next to the car, I'll have the keys in my hand. But overall, the idea is you can keep it in the pocket. When I'm at visiting friends, like they stay in my pocket, they don't move. I get in the car, I press start, and it starts. So that would be a small regression. But again, uh, quite nice technology. So I'm really excited to see uh, if maybe car manufacturer will skip uh, digital key spec 2.0 and go to wait for 3.0. Uh, again, I'm eager to see what Android and Google will do on this side. Uh, because if they have equivalent shareable ultra, ultra wideband technology, uh, that would help for this. And, um, that would maybe incentivize car manufacturers to go to Supernova directly and not based on the technology that is NFC right now that is shared already between iPhones and Android phones. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like this entire car key thing is getting a lot of attention in the mobile payments world because it's actually kind of their sneaky way of teasing what's coming up for Apple Pay. Uh, like we know ECP exists and we've known that for quite a while now because there are discussions about it uh, to basically allow stuff like the express transit mode on the Apple Watch and on the iPhone to support multiple payment cards at a time, which right now it doesn't. Uh, and the ultra wideband thing is also coming to Apple Pay eventually. Like it's pretty inevitable. Like the next generation of Suica is going to be ultra wideband and all of that stuff. Um, so, oh, me, whoa, wait a sec. The like Suica is ultra wideband without Apple pushing pushing for it. You mean? Uh, well, I mean, like they've had tech demos at conventions and stuff where huh. you can do payments over uh over uh mobile phones via ultra wideband, so it is possible. Wow. Okay. And they're talking about ultra wideband based uh train gates at newer JR stations in the coming years. So like this infrastructure is already like in process of being developed, and like I mean, it's probably going to come to China and Japan before the rest of the world. Uh, and it's really interesting to see all of this technology show up in Karki because if it shows up in Karki in the coming year or two, that means they'll probably be among the first people to actually adopt uh, ultra wideband for Apple Pay and Suica in Japan. And then they'll have an entire fleet of phones already out on the market that can do it instead of having to wait uh, to ship new hardware, which is like the really interesting part of this is like suddenly maybe your iPhone is even more valuable within uh two to three years from now so yeah car key has been really fascinating just to see like all of the parallels between payment tech being replicated here in uh, car key tech and because they're trying to sell partners publicly uh on it with this session versus apple pay where everything happens behind closed doors like you actually have confirmation for once that this is actually happening and not just behind closed doors uh no and uh, I had a couple, a couple, couple other points to make, but you're kind of coming to my conclusion after watching this session. Uh, is one exactly what you just said? Super interesting. And two, the tech that Apple is using is what a lot of crypto experts were saying. We need car manufacturers to do this, ex use those techs to make car key more secure. Because let's be honest, right now they're not really incentivized. You, your car gets stolen. The insurance pays for it. They sell another car, quote unquote, because of that. So who cares, right? Uh, so there was not really incentives. And the fact that Apple uh, and 
tech companies are just saying like there's incentive for it to be secure but also just nicer experience for the users that's a huge thumbs up uh two last uh, one last point excuse me uh automaker apps we've talked about them and we'll talk oh, about no. <laughs> we'll talk about them uh in my next session uh they they go a bit on those topics uh but the two points they want to mention about it is uh they strongly suggest that if you have a, a current app yeah bring your own f- custom features to it but make sure that you can start the owner pairing process from it and not rely on like an email like i was saying with a, a custom web-based link and of course uh, they mentioned that to start this feature you need to have the car manufacturer entitlement which if you have already been a good car manufacturer you should already have a carplay app which required another entitlement for for apps only Tyler tailored to the app template that is car manufacturer so uh, if you want to bring new feature for car key i guess there's a different entitlement but you should obviously ask for the first one so they'll give you the second one and last but not least they took an opportunity to say hey by the way those apps with car connectivity consortium but also let's not forget we have the mfi program come talk to us about them at mfi go to our website about mfi so that was kind of fun to say that they said at the same moment in the session which is what at the end here's what you can do to improve your app by the way we're good like team players like we want this to be tech that is available for everybody in around the world whomever like whatever tech they're using but at the same time please be part of the mfi program or <coughs> excuse me you're required to be part of mfi program to take advantage of a lot of the things we do at apple and that is it for session 10 10,006 introducing car keys those wacky numbers yes. i didn't note down any of those numbers because i don't you d- usually do it in normal yes. years and now they're even more ridiculous i was just like fuck that shit yeah usually it's a, t- it's a tradition that i go look them up while you talk about your sessions but yes. uh, this year i won't do it i'll let you just look at the show notes when we put the link there good so as previously mentioned my sessions this year are a lot less out there than they would usually be um and the reason for this is i've had a, a couple ideas uh in recent years for potential apps that i'd like to develop for myself and those are apps that would be useful across all of apple's platforms and last year i was thinking uh about writing one of them in either swift ui or ui kit with a mac version based on catalyst and going through the process on the show and giving my thoughts based on actual experience with uh using the frameworks instead of just talking out of my ass like i usually do uh unfortunately last year neither of them seemed mature enough for the project that i was most interested in working on uh so i put it on the shelf and now i'm dusting it off again and Ooh. trying to reevaluate uh both of these frameworks given what's new in 2020 and maybe the app will get made now i don't know Ooh, oh yannick yannick and now i'll ping you every two every two weeks to tell to ask you what's the status on those <laughs> well i i'm not gonna tell you what the app is either so <gasps> really <laughs> oh yeah, 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 yeah it's gonna be a surprise if it happens at all um I'm disappointed now so I have two sessions today. Uh, one is about SwiftUI. One is about Catalyst. Uh, so let's jump into the one about SwiftUI. So the session I covered was App Essentials in SwiftUI, uh, which covers a lot of the new technology introduced in SwiftUI with regards to application lifecycle, uh, which is really exciting. So last year, SwiftUI introduced a whole new suite of APIs to create, modify, and compose views all across Apple platforms. And this year, they've extended that framework to include new notions, which are scenes and apps. 
scenes are effectively a concept that wraps window content. Uh, anything that can be represented by a window in a Mac app uh, or a, uh, well, I guess they're technically still windows on iPad as well, except they are tiled instead of overlapping. Uh, they are called are... scenes under UIKit, so they're using the same nomenclature, more or less. Yeah, I'm just trying to explain it to people who didn't actually know the UIKit API yet. Uh, and of course, apps are applications and also a collection of scenes. Uh, SwiftUI exposes applications as an ownership hierarchy where views are the basic building blocks and they can be composed with themselves. Scenes are a collection of views that can be presented by the operating system and can be composed with themselves in the context of, let's say, uh, automatically getting tabbed window support on the Mac. Uh, that, that effectively is like a tabbed window scene with sub-scenes under it. And then you have uh, the content of your app, which is all of your scenes in your app. Uh, and this was illustrated with a pretty nice little uh, code example called the Book Club app. Uh, and what they basically did is they had a graphical representation of the ownership hierarchy that they explained. And then they put the code next to it. And what you noticed is that the indentation depth and the structure of the code matched the hierarchy exactly, uh, which is a common pattern in uh, SwiftUI. It's not entirely surprising. Um, Apps and views share a lot of common structural elements in the API, like state objects and the body property defining the content, where the content uh, of an application is going to be the main scene uh, and uh, the content of a view is going to be its subviews. Uh, then they had a little demo showing the window group scene. Uh, window group scene is a scene you can use uh, to base your application around uh, that gives you automatic support for multiple windows on iPadOS and on the Mac. Navigation title view modifier automatically sets the window title in the iPadOS app switcher. Uh, same thing on the Mac. Uh, interestingly, on the Mac, you automatically get a new window menu bar item if you use a window group. There's also an automatic window switcher in the window menu that you get for free. Uh, you get merge windows in the window menu, which is provided for free, which lets you convert your multiple open windows of the same type into tabbed windows. Uh, so all of that stuff that you used to have to do manually with AppKit is now done for you automatically under SwiftUI. Um, there are some finer points to window group. The OS handles the lifecycle of your scenes according to what is appropriate for whatever platform you're running it on. On window-based platforms like iPad or the Mac, new scenes can be instantiated by new window events. All of these multiple scenes share the same definition behind the scenes, but they can have separate states for the different instances. Um, and there's a scene storage property wrapper which provides automatic state restoration by the OS. Um, and this, at least to me seems to be a lot more reliable than what we saw out of state restoration APIs since the very early days of iOS, <laughs> which were kind of supposed to work. And I don't think I ever actually got them to work correctly. I think it is last year with iOS 13 that state restoration got tacked on, uh, yeah, tacked on top of NS user activity. The API that does half of the things on UIKit, whether it's like uh, uh, end off or uh, continuity, uh, and that you can use this new API. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure, but I recall that there was something new about uh, state restoration and NS user session. Uh, yeah, and NS user activity, excuse me, last year. Uh, so, and yet another way to do state restoration. To be honest, a lot of the things that I've noticed in all of these uh, SwiftUI enhancements. It seems like a band-aid to 
the like growing infection that is UI uh, NS user activity, where they're like, <laughs> we have this massive API and it does everything. Uh, we need to make something that is a lot more coherent and fit fits into our vision better. And then like the Swift UI app stuff just like simplifies a lot of it. It doesn't do the entire work yet, but it is getting to a point where it is doing a lot more than you previously had to do. And it's a lot less complex. Window group is really cool because it gives you all of this free uh, window-based behavior. Um, but what if you have a document-based app? Well, luckily for you, there's a document group scene. Uh, you can use that and you get free document-related actions like opening documents, editing documents, saving documents. Uh, it looks like a lot of, uh, is it an NS document or UI document? I forgot on iOS. It's been so long. Uh, on iOS? Yeah. I, that's a good question. I, I guess neither of us really develop document-based apps, so it's not something we really pay much attention to. Yeah, I heard of NS Document on the Mac, but on... But the same thing exists on iOS, guaranteed. Uh, okay. I just I don't know. know if it's in Foundation or in UIKit, because I forgot. It's probably in UIKit. Um, but basically, uh, there's a lot of rich document stuff that you can do through document coordinators and all of that stuff in... Uh, in iOS. And this is just a really streamlined way to get a really quickly up and running uh, document-based app across all Apple platforms, which is kind of ridiculous when you think about it. Uh, it makes me wish that my app ideas were document-based uh, because it would be a lot less trouble to develop it. Uh, unfortunately, not the case. Uh, but there's an entire session called Build Document-Based Apps in Swift UI uh, that handles explaining all of this. But it, it is just as simple as adopting window group for the most basic of behavior, which is actually kind of cool. Real-time follow-up. You are correct, my friend. They are, there is a class called UI document the same way there's a class called NS document. Yes. So, okay, I learned something today. I forgot about UI document, it seems. I think they're more or less equivalent, kind of like NS color is more or less equivalent to UI mm, color, yeah, but yeah. like platform differences. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, there's a settings scene type that you can use to define your application's preferences window. Uh, so automatically, if you set this thing, you get a preferences uh, option in your uh, application menu, and you can just go in there and see this preferences window get mounted onto your desktop and wow you can set settings it's awesome uh you can also define your own menus menu items and keyboard shortcuts using the commands modifier using this really funky swift ui syntax for uh menus and menu items which is actually one of the more more interesting apis that i've seen out of swift ui uh it's really cool and it lets you do kind of rich stuff like the window uh, picker that we were mentioning earlier, except based around the logic of your application, if you need to do that. So in summary, uh, that's a lot of stuff that was not there last year. Uh, <laughs> it's really exciting. It gives me a lot of hope in SwiftUI as this uh, really nice platform that can replace a lot of the jank from uh, both app delegates, which have grown significantly over the years and uh what i was mentioning earlier uh ns user activity which this doesn't do everything yet but it is slowly getting to the point where a lot of the a lot of the original stuff that was handled by ns user activity is now sort of integrated into this like app model uh that swift ui handles and that means that you can actually like build 
components and systems now to do the rest of what an NS user activity does that focuses on a, doing a certain thing well instead of lumping everything into the same API, which is kind of what they've been doing until now. Uh, so it's exciting stuff for that. Uh, what is a little bit less exciting, but I guess we kind of just have to deal with it by now because it's a little bit late to be complaining about it, uh, especially after last year, is SwiftUI makes it pretty damn clear that Apple's vision for uh, applications going forward is that applications are more or less the same app across all Apple platforms. And then it becomes like, like structurally, the app is the same across all your platforms. Uh, your sidebar is going to be the same on the Mac than it is on iOS for the most part. Uh, your toolbars are going to mimic themselves from platform to platform. This is great if you're looking for application functionality parity between the Mac and iPad. Uh, it is not necessarily great if you think that different platforms should have different UI paradigms that are not just limited to like the padding around their controls and all of that stuff. Um, but that is a different argument for another episode. But just to say like Swift UI has a pretty strong stance on this and it saves you a lot of work if you're trying to do multi-platform applications. But at the same time, it's kind of nailing that down and saying like, no, this is the way forward and you just have to deal with it now. Um, so yeah. So that's it for the first session I have to cover. Oh, before you go, we before we go for my next session, I do have a small comment about uh, what you were saying about the multi-platform app. Or we couldn't even say cross-platform, but like cross-Apple platform. Uh, I feel uh, no, I do like the small change of tone regarding SwiftUI this year. Because if you recall, when SwiftUI was introduced last year, Apple was saying that it is one framework. That you learn that is, and then you share, you, you take your knowledge and it can be applied to Apple platforms, to Apple, all the Apple platforms. This year, if you don't know the beta, the betas, you'll see in Xcode 12, you have a new project template called multi-platform, cross-platform. I forgot the exact name they used, but there's a project right in the project template that is, Hey, I want to support all or some or like our subset of the Apple platforms. And they already uh, provide, let's say, uh, a, like a file hierarchy in the project saying, okay, here's all my shared logic. Here's what's iOS specific. Here's what's tvOS specific. Here's what's Mac specific. So that you have one code base for all those platforms. And it was interesting because last year they were saying that, no, 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 SwiftUI is different on each platform, but the tools, the, the but it is a tool you can use on all of them. You might not use the exact same tools, the exact same functionalities, but if you learn how to build UIs using SwiftUI, yes, maybe the specific Mac toolbar is not, the component is not available on iOS, but you know how to architect, build the architecture of your apps using those and you have to like plug and play. And that's what people have seen when they tried in the past few, past year. You've seen that people were enabling, disabling, depending of which target they were targeting. Uh, but now it seems that no, no, that's not like we rolled back a bit or it was like it was too early tech at this point to do so. And I'm quite, to be honest, I'm quite happy to see that, that they move, they move slightly to the left or the right, depending on what you want to say. And you say, no, no, it's not only, you know, the framework. It's like, no, no, you have the same code base and now you can target all the Apple platform. I'm sure. There'll still be some more, we'll need a couple of years to be fully there. But I agree with you this year. It is one of my big, 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 uh, t 
thing that gets me excited after that. that like, I really want to play more with Sufjai this year than I literally did last year, which is, I think, maybe an hour or two. I think Gruber's comment coming out of the... It was either the keynote or the State of the Union was, wow, all the Mac apps now look like Catalyst apps. And it was kind of funny at the time. Uh, but I think Swift UI, especially with like this new philosophy, it tries to push you towards making applications that fit a certain model and that are presented in a very similar way across Mac and iOS. And that will give Mac apps developed and SwiftUI going forward a very Catalyst-like look because it seems that that was where they were going all along is we just want to make the presentation as close as possible between these two platforms, except one is an overlapping window and one is in a tiled window and is it going to be the right call going forward i'm not so sure but at least the api that they have to do that right now is really really nice uh like that's the compliment i can give it disagree with the execution but the api (laughs) is really nice good i'm I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing topic for the next few uh, months and it could be a year or two for sure Uh, i'm going to be surprised that it will come back especially if you start to build apps using sophia i haven't said which i'm using yet Oh, but that's why I am implying that maybe you'll be tempted. Okay, let's go to my second uh, session for tonight. It is session 10, 635, Accelerate Your App with CarPlay. And I think it is uh, the third year, not in a row, but out of four years we do those, <laughs> it's the third year I, I um, look into those. But CarPlay has evolved a lot in the recent years. Yeah, you can have a wallpaper now. Uh, okay, I guess. Maybe I should have said, uh, no, you can have a wallpaper. Last year, the big update was this new dashboard UI, which is no longer just a grid of icons. We can have kind of what people are doing in car, like car people are doing with car infotainment system, which I love. One of the big, uh, addition I got throughout the year is the ability to have navigation app show themselves and not only Apple map show themselves into the dashboard view. Which something I didn't know, it requires some of the new APIs that now makes for better CarPlay apps. So they kind of started the, the session by reminding you about navigation and you change that now they remind developers that you move to what they call app templates. Because this year they are tweaking three app templates, two, two or three, you'll see why I say two or three, uh, app templates and they are adding three new ones. Of course, they start before going through those new changes. They start to remind the developers of CarPlay, uh, the design principles. And I want to go through them because they sound, kind of sound stupid and obvious, but at the same time, uh, it's really interesting. Uh, of course, design and optimize for the driver, which that one was the most surprising to me. Uh, and I, and of course, what they want to say by that is you should think that the person that is going to use your CarPlay interface is not a friend driving along, like tagging along with you. So you should assume that, again, you should have streamlined interaction, common flows, glanceable interactions, because you're driving. You should not be touching your phone uh, or touching your car infotainment system uh, the way you when you're just like chilling on your couch. But again, like... When I have somebody in a car, I, they tend to be, uh, the one driving the CarPlay interface and not me. So 
I would I wouldn't be surprised that at some point they might want to revisit that, but I'm sure there's some like uh, large stuff that like oh my god we don't want to put more stuff in front of drivers so they crash and then be uh, be sued because of it. Uh, so yeah, those two points were kind of like huh I understand why they why they would say that, but at the same time I feel that they could optimize some for other people in the car. Of course, they uh, assume that you would reuse app configuration. What they mean by that is if you already have since a car plays an extension. You already have an app. You should reuse what you already have in your app for your CarPlay experience and just adapt it for the car UI. And they remind you that it is important that you support and don't assume that your app is first launched on what they call the phone scene. That's why I brought up the point because the word, the term scene is used now a lot by Apple to not say window, but just say scene. So they, they really want to make sure that you don't have any assumption in your application that let's say you have a, a first launch experience. You, you might not want to have your first launch experience on the phone. Uh, and also they strongly suggest that your first launch experience might be optional because if it's in a car with CarPlay, you want to skip it and you don't want to block your UI. You might be forced to do that because maybe login, stuff like that. But they really, really, really apply the same logic as with uh, iOS apps. If you have a login, they really try to make the the developers maybe make it optional and stuff like that. Now let's move to the first app template that has lots of changes, and the first one is audio app. So if you recall, um, or if you didn't know, uh, the way audio apps are in CarPlay is you provide all the metadata, and CarPlay builds the UI for you. So let's say you say, oh, I have a list and it contains these albums. So you just say, I have a list of 10 albums. Here's the data about the albums. And you don't really say, oh, I want this UI with this thumbnail for this row one. And you don't really touch the views themselves. You only provide the metadata and CarPlay does the rest for you. So it makes for a consistent experience between apps because they all look the same. But at the same time, it also makes for a quote-unquote faster experience because there's limited stuff you can do and you need to provide it to the OS. So this API called Playable Content API is now deprecated. Be- oh no. Because on uh, So you still can support it on iOS 13 and below. So if your app is iOS 13 and below, we can still support it. But starting iOS 14, the idea is you need to use the new audio template, which again is based on UI scene and the scene delegate. So now they've added in CarPlay a special scene delegate call. So if you support already, uh, or if you used to the way, uh, as Yannick mentioned in Swift UI, they're calling scenes in uh, iPad OS apps. Uh, they call UI scenes and you have a scene delegate. So the CarPlay framework uh, added a new class called CP template application scene delegate. Um, but that's something I thought was new in iOS 14, but it is not. After watching and doing some of my research, I realized that that, that exact scene delegate base type was added in 13.4 because the first usage of app templates and scenes was navigation apps because that was, that's what they were using for integrating into the dashboard, like I said in the opening. And now scene-based application with templates are the recommended way to build CarPlay apps, not only audio apps. So for example, again, even if they're like they, they're, they are a template, it's still based on the metadata. It's just that now you could have those 
diff you have way more template objects you can use so let's say you have for example a cp list template is an object that you use to build a list you and on top of that with those new templates the big addition compared to something like playable content api is that a lot of those objects now can be dynamically changed before you had to kind of like take your view hierarchy or your data transform it go through a transform method and end up with the data the content uh, playable content api was expecting and let's say in row two the title changed just a bit you need to recreate the whole metadata and then pass it again to carplay oh no and then okay at least then the second update it's like half of the 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 list changed because you've loaded something from the network from let's say lte so now you can update but for minute changes in your data uh, you had to recreate the whole hierarchy of object because properties on specific objects were not read and write they were read only so this means now that let's say you have a list and you have an item if item number two it's its name changes or its image now loaded or it's waiting for a network operation and then you want to change something you can just keep an instance of this item in the list and change it and carplay will do the rest for you which i can imagine could have been interfering and could also explain some of the slowdowns we've seen uh, in carplay sometimes where maybe an app was sending too much update and have to recreate the whole hierarchy and then carplay was slowing down uh, a template that was i think only reserved to apple's carplay app is not available this is a tab bar and of course, like with tab, uh, with all of the new objects, they can be updated dynamically. So whether you can change the name of a tab, you can add a badge, you can remove the badge. Um, list item. So a lot of those uh, like base class have a new properties optimized for audio app, like a progress bar indicator. You can have a widget that is now playing bouncing bars. Uh, you can have like, the iCloud, uh, the not the iCloud, but the cloud icon to mention that this song is not downloaded, that it might be streamed. Also, they are showing, because they are bringing uh, Apple Books to CarPlay, or they brought recently Apple Books to CarPlay, that wasn't clear from the video, and I didn't really look. But they call a new row that is uh, images to show you the, a thumbnail of the book covers. Now you can use that in your own app. So uh, all, of, all of what you can see with audio apps is, the concept is still there. You can still bring, like let's say, Overcast, to uh, carplay like overcast is already on carplay but apple is improving is adding more customization stuff that you can do another thing that they've done is that the now playing template is now more, more customizable you can support link to the play the play next queue uh, so you can decide whether this thing is on or off and go to your own play next QUI, you can also have the artist being highlighted. So let's say you want to go back to the artist catalog and not just the album, you can have a direct link to that. On top of that, you can also have a new toolbar at the bottom of the now playing screen that you can put your own buttons into it. So you can possibly change like the play speed. Uh, and that is now that was available only at uh, only Apple apps were able to use that. Now it is available to custom uh, apps. Next app template is what they call communication apps. 
if you recall before, there was messaging app and void apps, and they are now merging them together into a new app template called communication. And the idea is because messaging app and void app were based on Siri kit and call kit. So they never really add UI of their own. Um, so let's say, uh, I think I have, hmm, what app do I have that I really use? Oh yes, Zoom. Surprisingly enough, the Zoom app is on CarPlay. <laughs> and that was a bit messy because it was not really handling like this. Every time you were launching, it would trigger Siri. Even if you were already on a call, that so was super fun when I tried that. But now those apps on CarPlay are now allowed to use the CarPlay framework and not only use Siri kit and call kit. So they can have UI of their own. They can have a list of contacts. They can have a list of message threads. Of course, when you were to open a message, you would revert back to SiriKit. Or if you want to start a, a call with a contact, you would revert to CallKit. That doesn't change. But now they can have customized UI. And on top of that, they are all based on the same CP list templates and all that fun stuff with customized subclass like CP messages item that is really optimized for them. You can have like an Android indicator, a pin for pin conversation, your star indicator, you can have Im- uh, like a leading image for let's say uh like on the on the leading side of your cell you have like a your avatar and on the trailing side you have a different image that is uh regarding your system. You can have a mute indicator so they really can build your uh communication app to be more or less fully fledged uh carplay apps because before they felt like baby apps literally they kind of were in my book, a bit useless. Last but not least, for that is only for uh, communication apps, is that they are now they now have a new template that is called the contact template. Of course, let's say you have a list of contacts, you might want to show some information uh, about the 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 contact you want to either call, maybe you want to go have driving indications to this contact, so you can have quick action on this row at uh, this. Uh, full screen presentation and also some couple of information not too much because we're driving if you don't forget but they have a template uh, optimized for that lastly for this session apple uh, has introduced three new app templates uh, for different app categories the they are ev charging apps parking apps and quick food ordering and they kind of more or less they are related because the technology they've brought in are like intertwine the first new technology they brought in is a point of interest template and this is a template that is based on a map kicked view so you you more or less see apple maps but you're able to put your own point of interest and you have a ui that is card based like apple maps where you have a card on the side so if you use apple maps on carplay you're really really familiar with this uh, again, the point interest, and I'll leave a link in the show notes. Like some of these templates that I've mentioned are either available or not available, depending on the de- de- depending on the different template that you use. So if you go on the carplay documentation, you'll be able to see that. Uh, but yeah, so the point interest is based on market, and of course, it is interactive. So uh, you have a limit of twelve points on interest shown at a time but you're notified when the user pans around or zoom so you can update the points and interest shown. This limitation of 12 is mainly because they don't want to they want uh, they don't want the developers to like bombard the screen of a shit ton of point of interest. They are point of interest so they should be limited according to your zoom and pan level in the map. 
The last one that they have added that is related to all of these is the information template. So it's a full screen to show information. The couple of examples they've, they've demoed is on the EV charging demo app. They were saying, oh, here's your screen where you can uh, start uh, your charge cycle or like just start your the, the pay charge. Like they will tell you, okay, this uh, this it's this parking with EV charging is like, let's say like a dollar per kilowatt. I don't um, forgot the price they were saying, but, uh, and here's, uh, you, we figure out that you're at this location. Do you want to start paying? So you say yes. And you do that. Same thing with, uh, parking. And the other one was quick food ordering. They were saying that if you have like a, like a quick food or like a, a quick food store, uh, restaurant, excuse me, uh, you could, let's say, have an app in CarPlay that has your favorite item. So you don't have the full menu, but you can quickly, let's say, uh, order you the coffee the way you always drinking in the morning on your way to work. Kind of like an app clip. Yeah, that's kind of the next one I want to mention. Uh, that's the weird part about quick food ordering is that it's not an app clip. And that's kind of weird because I felt that it would be perfect for this exact purpose those three those three categories felt more at home inside an app clip than inside of a carplay app template yeah so kind of supporting the conclusion to that se- the, the sessions but uh, or my opinion about this session but while the new functionality are nice, again, not all the functionalities are available to all different types of apps. So let's say you might not be able to use the information template if you are, let's say, I think a navigation app. Uh, though the navigation apps are the one that have accessible to are, are accessing are able to access the most templates. Uh, but yeah, it's still like CarPlay is still limited on the things you can do depending of which category of app you are, and related to DAP. Again, CarPlay requires a specific entitlement, and this entitlement is per app template because your app is your iOS apps requires to be single category, so it cannot be in three categories. You cannot be a like a quick food ring and EV charging and parking and communication. No, it need to be one category, and depending of the entitlement you have in your app, stuff might not be allowed for you to use. Hence, why well, find those new app categories to be a bit useless i mean can you see what people will do with them to be honest uh but the example that apple shown were kind of weak uh to say the least i i felt that if they were trying to drive like show examples of what people could do they did a poor job of that for those three types of apps especially when another session they were showing talking about app clips so I'm eager that uh, I'm eager to see if they'll revise their uh, position on app clips and CarPlay because I do feel that CarPlay will make great sense to run some specific types of uh, of app clip like quick food ordering, charging, parking. Those are all some. Those are some examples that Apple brought up when they were talking about app clips. But the thing that kind of makes it weird is if you think about the use case of app clips like you're going to physically put your phone on like a tag or something whereas like what are you going to do you're going to drive your car onto a giant app clip sticker <laughs> that's on the like i don't i am not no, sure yeah, what yeah. the flow would be but th- don't forget that app clips can be triggered from the maps app so it can be location oh, yeah, that's it can be location based yeah, yeah okay never mind there's no excuse i agree with you that you're right that the main example they mentioned is the fancy NFC, uh, the fancy uh, 
not NFC, QR code tags and or the NFC tags, but they can be sent over iMessage. They can be shown at specific locations. So like shown at a specific location is a great, great set for the car, but nope. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of, that kind of left me. I know I'm not a CarPlay app developer, but again, the CarPlay is always like the framework. I like to see what's new because I wish I had an opportunity to play with it. Uh, I think in the past few years, you, we've discussed Yannick and I about the frameworks. We like to have an opportunity to play with it, but we don't. So we don't really play with it, but we follow what Apple is doing on them. And CarPlay is exactly one. Uh, one thing I didn't have the time to really look into because it's a 50 page document. But this year, Apple provided a new document called CarPlay App Programming Guide, which is strange because, like I said, it's a PDF. So it's not documentation. It's just, it is documentation, but it's not like a web page based documentation. It's a PDF that has a date on it. So I'm eager to see, uh, how frequently it will be updated. But I guess it is all related to do this new concept of scenes and templates and all apps should use it. So that's why they've provided this programming guide. And that is it. Okay. Um, my next session, unsurprisingly, is going to be what's new in Mac Catalyst. Big shock there. Yeah, another big year on Mac Catalyst. Yeah. Same thing with SwiftUI. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for those who are not familiar with uh, WWDC sessions, uh, generally when a, WWDC, uh, when a WWDC session is called what's new in blank, uh, they go through like a the release notes for whatever they're talking about generally like there's what's new in Cocoa touch or what's new in ui kit and those kinds of things um this year i found that the what's new in mac catalyst uh session was a lot less structured than previous years i felt like it was kind of just an info dump that was not very coherent which is kind of unfortunate uh, so if it sounds like i'm reading a bunch of bulleted points that's because i am <laughs> and that's because that's how the session was a note on the session format i did like the ones that they were having like uh, the design with and the build with i think one of them yeah is i haven't had design time to watch with those, yeah. uh, ios menus and pickers and there was the same but build with Build your app with iOS uh, menus and app uh, and uh, like pickers. Uh, they had a couple of these. I think pointer interaction was one. Hardware cable had yeah. one. Uh, had those one of this of this pair. And I really like this format because it was like kind of a more designer people Apple focusing on this, and then people showing you code how to do that. So UX code, UX code was a great pair of session. And there was one for app clips too. Oh, that's true. So they opened up with a thing that killed my interest in Mac Catalyst last year. Well, <laughs> other than the fact, then it sucks, uh, which is that uh, last year, too many iOS APIs were unavailable via Catalyst. Uh, so you would show up to port your iOS app to Catalyst, and then you would do the thing, and it would tell you, this framework is not available on the Mac. Screw you. Uh, and you would cry and not use Catalyst. Or it would be a, a red sea of errors in Xcode. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so this year, they've added support for dozens of new frameworks uh, to make it easier for people to port their iOS apps over to the Mac, which makes sense. Uh, APIs that make use of hardware features that the Mac is not equipped for, like ARKit, for example, uh, they now exist on the Mac, but they and they behave identically to how they would on iOS hardware devices that don't have those features. Uh, so this means you can finally use runtime checks to actually determine if a feature is available instead of having to use dirty preprocessor directives all over your code to exclude symbols from those frameworks when targeting the Mac. 
so yeah, it's going to be really cool to see like all these new APIs make their way over to the Mac. Uh, I believe the framework that I was missing last year is on the Mac now, so that makes Catalyst viable for the secret app I'm working on. Can I know which frameworks you were waiting for? No. Oh. <laughs> one day, I don't know. One day. Um, w- one thing to note about uh, this session is that there have been a lot of things added to Catalyst over the last year since last WWDC, so they actually added in things that have changed since last year in this session as well. So it's possible that some of these... Um, Maybe things that are not necessarily new in Big Sur, but have been new in Catalina uh, over the last year. But since I'm not really a Catalyst developer, I wasn't able to tell which were which because they didn't actually mention it explicitly in all cases. Uh, so I think this is one that I'm not sure uh, is new or not. And that is keyboard event support is now supported through Catalyst. So everything that was related to um, keyboard support on iOS literally for... Uh, button pressed uh like on key press on key up key down all that stuff uh that was previously not possible with hardware keywords on the ipad now that's possible and it's also possible through catalyst uh focus engine from tvos now makes its way over to catalyst uh to facilitate customizing the behavior of keyboard based focus switching uh like you would do with the tab key on a keyboard ui table view and ui collection view have both been updated so that and this is like it's such an oddly specific thing to actually like mention in this kind of session. Uh, so l- let's say you click on a table view cell and you use the keyboard to move the focused cell. Uh, previously, I believe that you had to press enter so that the column, like the detail view, would get updated to match the new selection that you just made with the arrow keys. Whereas on the Mac, you would have the option to decide do I just want to move the cursor through this list or do I want to change the focus of the detail view? Uh, now that option is also available on table views and collection views to match what is available on the Mac. They've added this thing called UI scene activation request options dot collection join behavior, which is a hell of a mouthful. Uh, <laughs> If you're familiar with the target attribute on links in HTML, uh, this basically allows you to determine when you initiate a new scene, if you want to create a new window, create a new tab, create a tab in the background, or follow user reference uh, when running on the Mac, uh, which can be useful uh, if you have a browser-type application, but not necessarily a web browser. Uh, now moving into controls, UI Color Well and UI Color Picker View Controller, which are introduced in iOS 14, uh, wrap AppKit native color wells and color pickers in Big Sur. UI Date Picker now has an equivalent to the AppKit inline date picker instead of the weird wheel thing that people have been complaining about for two years. Uh, so that's good. Uh, UI buttons now support presenting drop-down menus. Uh, previously, I don't think that was possible, which is kind of strange. Uh, these are fully native in Big Sur. View controllers that are presented as sheets are now presented in their own distinct NS windows, which can be resized by the user, so that needs to be taken into consideration by app developers. Popovers are now no longer a weird emulation of UI popovers, and they are presented as NS popovers, which A, have their own windows, and B, can escape the border of the original window. Uh, this is consistent with the uh, the behavior of popovers elsewhere on the Mac, uh, if you're using the API that has been around since, I want to say, Lion? That sounds like a Lion thing. Um, UI Split View Controller now supports three column natively, with one of the columns being a sidebar. 
sidebars were previously uh, supported in Catalyst, um, but now the appearance has been made much more consistent with native Mac app toolbars, uh, sidebars, sorry. Uh, SF Assembles is now supported on the Mac. This is used prominently in the podcast app. Uh, so every icon in the podcast app, or most of them anyway, uh, appeared to come from SF Symbols. And this means that they don't have to include multiple resolutions of assets for all device types. And it scales much more gracefully than using PDF uh, assets. There's a new mode uh, that you can enable when using Catalyst on the Mac. It's called Optimized for Mac. This switches the scaling factor that was previously on Catalyst. Uh, so if you're not familiar, uh, UI elements that were brought over from uh, iOS were scaled at 77% when displayed on a Mac, which was weird and created weird text rendering artifacts and occasionally the graphics were off. And if you're a fan of pure retina pixels, uh, it was unacceptable. Now you can flip over to Optimized for Mac, and uh, the scaling factor is 100% by default. Uh, so this means that your text is going to be crisper, your graphics are going to display as intended. Uh, none of that bullshit. Uh, there is another consequence to the Optimized for Mac uh, mode, which is that uh, they no longer limit themselves to emulating the metrics of your controls as they would be on iOS. So for example, if you create a button uh, in a, in an old Catalyst app, it will look exactly like a button would look on iOS. There is no control emulation there. And th that's by design because if they were to use a native macOS button, uh, the metrics of that would be different. So it would, uh, destroy your auto layout constraints and all of that stuff if you had certain expectations about how the thing is. So the default behavior with old Catalyst is preserve the metrics so that the app just works more fluidly and more quickly without needing more uh, developer adjustment, whereas optimized for Mac will say, whenever possible, we're going to replace uh, iOS controls with their Mac equivalents. Uh, and that's why it's opt-in. And because it's opt-in, it will require certain tweaks to your layout code. Uh, the other thing, and I'm not quite sure why this is only available in optimized for Mac mode, and I'm also not sure why this isn't just a standard UI kit control to begin with, uh, you can have checkboxes now. Uh, I don't know why this is an optimized for Mac feature. There should just be checkboxes in iOS. Like, I don't understand why we can't just have checkboxes in iOS. I complain about a lot of UI shit, but this is like the most nonsensical one I've seen. Wait a second, I thought I seen that there was a new thing on UI switch for that. I think it only works on the Mac. Oh, that would make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> no, but that would make sense with what you just said. Yes. And, ah, yeah, 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 I can see that the style checkbox. The style is only available on Mac OS for the U user idiom. Ah, you're it correct. It makes no sense. You are it's correct. It's so stupid. Please, just put checkboxes in iOS. Everyone wrote their own checkbox already. Just put them in iOS. It makes no sense. Anyway. Or people are using the the UI switch with the l default look of a sliding uh, switch, and that was look weird. Yeah, no, it's just weird. Next, they had a little section about using SwiftUI in Mac Catalyst apps. So it's weird because the first two statements are kind of contradictory. So the first thing they say is, if your app is written in SwiftUI, you don't need Catalyst. But apps that use SwiftUI alongside <laughs> UIKit will benefit from using Catalyst. 
What? Uh, so, so basically, I think like what they're trying to get at is if you're using all of the stuff that I mentioned in the first session uh, for app lifecycle and all of that stuff, like your app is more or less, or for the most part, uh, just going to be cross-platform already. Therefore, you gain nothing by actually using Catalyst. Um, if you're using your UI, if your app is primarily a UI kit thing, but you have certain views that are written in Swift UI, uh, then you probably want to use Catalyst to be up and running more quickly on the Mac. Um, they didn't explicitly say this, but my understanding is like if you just call Swift UI stuff, it's just going to behave like Swift UI would behave if you ran it natively on the Mac, except it knows what UI kit controls are if you're wrapping them which is kind of nice, I guess. Uh, but that's a that's a, a clear distinction between uh, since last year. Because um, if I recall correctly, on Catalina, when you were using Swift UI through a Mac Catalyst, you were not getting AppKit components. But I, I don't think that's the case now either. Huh. Okay, I, th- I, I thought because you were using like the iOS 14 SDK, you get this uh, optimized for Mac and blah, 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 and that will still work uh, with well, Swift I, UI. I'm not sure Mac. what like the cross-relation is between optimized for Mac uh, and Swift UI. Like, they didn't really go into it. They were just like, these two work great together, but I don't know what that means. Uh, so I can't really talk about that. But like, what, what I mean by that is like, if you use window group, like all of the window group stuff is going to happen by default uh, if you used it on uh on your ios code and then you use it through catalyst like you don't have to do any extra work to get all of the window group features that you would have gotten if you had just written the entire app in swift ui okay yeah, uh, yeah i see and stuff like that uh other stuff that they explicitly mentioned is like if you use the commands api to modify the menu bar like that is automatically going to be done oh one thing i forgot to mention in the swift ui session uh the commands api that they use for menu bar items are also what are used for keyboard shortcuts on ios which is graceful except there's no menu bar on ios which is the missing part so you have to rely on the shortcuts viewer to see what the shortcuts are uh toolbars are the same thing if you use whatever like toolbar code uh would have worked in regular swift ui it'll just work fine when you bring it over via catalyst application lifecycle has some big changes um to be honest like i haven't really followed the entire scene stuff that has happened in UIKit over recent years. Um, but basically, like the, the ch- big change they're talking about is when you're running through Catalyst, a scene may have transitioned to the background in more situations than was previously the case. And the scene transitions are going to occur even when the application is perceived to be running. Um, so I'm not quite sure. Like Again, they didn't give concrete examples of this um but this is just like a general tip that if you're still handling like application lifecycle transitions on a per app basis through the app delegate you should especially consider handling them on a scene by scene basis if you're using catalyst because those events are going to trigger more frequently than um your application delegate ones are yeah it wasn't it wasn't clear when they mentioned that whether it they meant that uh mac catalyst app would get closer to typical app kit life cycle of windows or that they were moving more into the direction of ios uh window life cycle it was unclear with the wording they use yeah they're, they're very vague about this kind of stuff like they usually are with a lot of multitasking stuff so it's kind of like never assume anything and just prepare for the worst <laughs> exactly 
extensions have changed through Mac Catalyst. So one of the things I was personally very excited about when they demoed it is that photo editing extensions uh, now work inside of photos on the Mac. Oh my uh, fucking they, God. I was I crying did, when I saw this. They even showed it running on Apple Silicon with apps that have been unmodified uh, from their current App Store build. So like you can just go get Darkroom on the App Store, install it on an Apple Silicon map, and suddenly you can use Darkroom from within uh, the Photos app, even though it's not a Mac app, it's an iOS app, but you can use its extension right in the Photos app, which is kind of cool. Uh, so that's an exciting thing. I don't know if we're going to be seeing these more types of extensions come to the Mac this way. Uh, I think that is a better fit for um, just ripping stuff off of iOS and running it directly on the Mac than running full iOS apps, but that's another podcast. Uh, once again here, they're saying like extension lifecycle more closely mimics iOS, whatever that means. Um, though they did give, give a little bit more detail. Uh, from my understanding previously, if you were using extensions that were exposed through a Catalyst app, you never got uh, low memory warning events or of any kind. Uh, and I guess that was causing crashes. Uh, so they are now, uh, basically like recreating the same model as on iOS. So if you're under memory pressure, you will get, uh, calls to low memory warning or whatever. And now everything behaves more predictably across platforms. Uh, and yeah, all, all of these changes apply to all catalyst extensions under Big Sur, which I guess means that you don't have to change any code. Hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, one thing that launched in iOS 14 was widget kit and any widget kit iPad widgets automatically become Mac widgets under catalyst. So that's great. They brought up universal purchase, which is a new thing. Uh, any purchase of a universal purchase app will grant it on all platforms that the app exists on. Uh, this is the default for new catalyst apps, but developers may opt out of it by unchecking use iOS bundle identifier in Xcode. Um, so interesting there. Uh, it really sort of sets the tone that Apple believes universal purchase is what you should be doing go going forward. And I am looking forward to seeing how developers adopt it because I'm not, I'm not sure indie developers are necessarily on board with that. Uh, I mean, it, it seems great for users, but at the same time, like they have to eat at the end of the day and giving everyone a undercosted application across all their platforms doesn't seem like a great way to make a living. Oh, I, I think it means more apps will go to subscription-based. Oh, my God. Okay, that's another podcast. I know, yes, I know uh, it's another podcast, but I don't want to go there. But that's when I saw that, I was like, it's nice. But, yeah, it just means that the, the, the possible way to go there is, yes, you pay $10 per month, and then voila, you have all the platforms. Great. I know. <laughs> uh. And last in this uh, session was some stuff talking about the new look of the Mac under Big Sur. Toolbars have four styles in Big Sur. Unified, compact, expanded, preference. And all of these can be uh, set through UI toolbar, toolbar, UI title bar, toolbar style. That is a weird tongue twister. Uh, you can set this on a per window basis uh, if you don't want to do it at the scene level. I guess this is new on iOS. I didn't really think about it. Um, so long-time Mac users may remember that uh, back in the old days, uh, you can still do this, but not in a Catalyst world, uh, you can right-click on a toolbar on, 
in most Cocoa applications and choose customize toolbar. And what you can do is you can drag these cool elements like um, separators and flexible space and spacers and just like put shit wherever you want in the toolbar. And like literally that is like my number one favorite thing when I, there's a new Mac OS update is I just go into every single application and I see what new shit I can add to my toolbars. Uh, fun, fun, fun. Uh, I don't think you can do that on iOS or, or through Catalyst uh, with iOS toolbars, um, but they are adding the separators, the flexible space, the spacers uh, to toolbars so that now you can correctly place your elements, and that is also supported through Catalyst, uh, which is exciting uh, because it gives more flexibility for placing things in toolbars. Um, now, please, Apple, just fucking give us the customized toolbar. I love that feature. Do you, do you remember when the tab bar on iOS was doing that? Yeah. That was also really cool, and I would do the same thing for that too. Yeah, and <laughs> I, I think if I recall correctly, they just pull out this feature, and now no, I think there's still this kind of more tab you can code yourself and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't see too much apps doing that because Apple's recommendation is like you should have like three to five tab, and that's it. Now you're forced to have the music app suck, no matter <laughs> how you configure it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still mad. Accent colors are I I think they're launching in the Mac this year. They are right. Yeah, it's it seems like there was a big deal that uh, like uh, tin color was coming to them. I don't know that they were not using tin color, but that's why what's name on under iOS. But yeah, yeah. So accent colors. Uh, I mean, like if you set tint colors on iOS, they will become accent colors on the Mac, and they will automatically tint controls and the text selection color uh, on your application unless the uh, user has forced it to be theirs. I think. Uh, so yeah, you can do that. And uh, if your sidebar is a collection view, which was a weird phrase that I wasn't expecting to hear in that session, but I guess everyone's using collection views nowadays. Uh, if you're using collection views in your sidebars, uh, you now get more automatic behaviors like drag and drop item reordering. I'm not sure how much I trust this. <laughs> I'm really not sure how much I trust this because if it's like state restoration, like good fucking luck. Uh, so <laughs> there's a lot of new APIs this year and last year on their UI collection view, and even some somewhat on their UI table view. Mainly the uh, default added sources, but even like now you can have lists in their UI collection view. It's like those components got so much lot so much love in the past two years. But in the past. Yeah, past last two, the last two WDC that there's a lot to learn there. I don't know. I haven't really paid attention to the specifics of iOS APIs recently, but I have this suspicion that like UI table view might just go away soon because collection view has gotten so strong. But yeah, they slowly but surely, especially with this new list mode, they're slowly but surely bringing more of the UI table view functionality to uh, collection view. I haven't played with it yet, but I'm eager to play with it. Just as long as there is no NSL anywhere. Anyway, uh, uh, whoa, NSL, uh, uh, what? NSL, the greatest API of all time. Um, so yeah, that's it. Uh, that's everything that was in the what's new in Mac Catalyst session. Uh, there's a lot of stuff there. Um, it's a lot less exciting than Swift UI, namely because like it's all of these old APIs and it feels weird to call UI get old, but Swift UI is a lot more exciting to me. Uh, even though it is not necessarily quite at the power level of what UI kit can do. Um, it seems like the kind of thing that would be more interesting to learn than having to catch up on however many years it's been since the last time I touched UI kit, the changes that are there. It's, it it kind of has that like cruft that makes it feel 
not quite to the level that Objective C is at, where like Objective C is kind of feeling like a legacy platform as much as I don't want it to be. Uh, and I think UIKit is kind of getting to the same place. Maybe next year is when it's going to hit like the mainstream inflection point. So, I mean, like if I had to choose one of these two plat- uh, platforms, no, frameworks for um, my project app, it would be hard to say no to SwiftUI. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm going to leave it. I am not surprised. I, I, if you, if somebody were to start an app today, and they were expecting to launch, let's say December, January 2021, and you don't want to support iOS 13, and you want to be a kind of fresh new thing, we'll have to see how, like, what are the number of bugs because with UI, I got a kind of a roller coaster year throughout the year like some stuff that work on 13.1 break on 13.2 got fixed in 13.3 and broke again <laughs> in 13.4 so Classic. yeah that was not really nice on that part uh again not personal experience i've just seen a lot of people bitching about that on the internets uh but yeah but again uh to me if you were to start a new app it's starting to be more on the side of like yeah maybe it's time to go look at swift ui if you start something new today uh, but for sure, there's a lot of new APIs in UIKit that should be removing a lot of custom code or third-party solutions that you've had to build or had to add to your projects in the last six, seven years. Uh, and every year now, even more uh, and from the past two, three years, there's a lot of stuff you can just remove. So I'm sure you'll like, you, you could get something up and running. And then I wouldn't be surprised when we talk about the architecture and say, Oh yeah, that you don't need to do this way. You can just use this new class on Apple. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised that if you start with UIKit, there's a lot of old habits, but then you realize, Oh, there's new, this new this and there's the new that that you can use if you want maybe to do less new learning in one bit. One of the things I would say about swift ui is it reminds me a lot of AppKit in a very particular way which is like sort of the impact that next left on the software development industry is that their frameworks were so rich and provided so much like free behavior to their developers that it made it a lot quicker and a lot more approachable for like independent developers to get out there and make an application that was competitive with like bigger uh, development teams. And I feel like UIKit never quite reached that level of giving you stuff for free. Uh, I feel like it was a really good set of building blocks that could easily be extended into more complex scenarios, but it never felt like just giving you super rich frameworks that gave you a lot of free behavior. Swift UI is kind of not only is it a radical rethinking of what a UI framework should look like because code-wise it's completely different, but it also provides so many of the platform behaviors that you would expect for free or with very, very little work. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for that. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this blog post that's been going around this week. It's called uh, Making a Best-in-Class iOS App. I think I've... Send it my way after because I think I've heard some comments. I've seen some comments on the Twitters about this, but didn't read it. Yeah, it's been going around Dev Circles this week, and uh, it's written by Jordan Morgan. And it's this giant checklist for like if oh, you're trying yeah, to make yeah. a best in class iOS app today, here is everything you need to do. And that list is incredibly fucking long. Yes. Uh, and like as someone who started with the very first iOS API, I can tell you like that list was not that long when you were developing on 
iPhone OS 2.2. Uh, like there just wasn't that much you could do to begin with uh, to do all that stuff. And that list is getting longer every year. Swift UI feels to me like it's designed for A, the UI patterns are built into the UI framework. And if Apple decides next week that they are radically redesigning how Mac and iOS apps look, uh, if you use Swift UI, you have a much greater chance that your UI will survive the transition than someone who is doing stuff manually in UIKit or uh, Catalyst or AppKit for that matter. Um, and the other thing is you just get a bunch of these best-in-class iOS app features for very little work. And like maybe you get more stuff over time as Swift UI does more for you every year. Uh, so it's just... I'm optimistic about Swift UI in the way that it's going to make the ins insurmountable amount of work you need to do to make a best-in-class iOS app just a little bit less every single time they add functionality to it. Or at least that's my hope. Uh, whereas I don't really see Catalyst solving that problem or UIKit, really. It's just more of the same. So yeah, it, it's exciting times uh, for iOS app development. Oh, it is. No, for sure it is. I've uh, Maybe to conclude this whole episode on just a quick note about the dub, uh, I felt that this year at the same time there was lots of shit and not a lot of shit uh like yeah like I've, we've been running the app at work on ios 14 and it's like again it's preliminary still but it's like man this shit just works and i've seen years where it's like oh my fucking god like the ui is broken there's this there's a couple of bug fix we need to do we need to go wait for a couple of betas for the uh the like the uh company player to work correctly uh and then it gives us time to maybe digest some of the concerns. Yes, we're not on the Mac, so I don't need to care too much about Apple Silicon yet, yet, I say, um, because I'm quite excited about this too. Uh, Swift UI get a lot of good improvements. Again, UI kit got a lot of good improvements too. Uh, they're not big, but still like list mode in UI collection view. Uh, oh my God. Uh, Let's say that we maybe had, had to build that in the past uh, at work and were not really successful because it is hard to do. So if Apple is doing that for you, uh, another concept, I need to explore it more, but build on top of the difficult data sources, which A, that was a big, that was quite hard to do correctly. And then they made all the changes visually and all that fun stuff without having some of those like, oh, you're trying to insert a, a row in a data source that says that there's no rows or you're trying to remove a... <sighs> a row from a data source that is already empty. It's like, oh, then all that the goes. Worst. Yes, Apple is doing that for you for free now. But on top of that's for from thirteen. But on top of that, on fourteen, this seems to say that they have different data source per section now, which is oh, a nice. concept that we've played a lot, and we do have some custom code at work to do so. But again, that was quite hard to do, and mainly based on uh on uh. The Objective-C runtime because like to kind of like uh, not swizzle but kind of fake it so that the uh, the like the section that I saw in that section thinks it's only one table. There was a lot of uh, funky stuff we had to do to make it think that the table view objects it received it's that. So uh, sounds like you're doing some iconoclasm shit. Yes, yes, yes. But all of this to say is lots of small improvements. I'm like, oh, I want to do this. I want to play with this uh, again. We might not be able to play with it yet. But I want just as a developer explore those and see how it improves my life uh, while building apps, even if I might need to play it. I uh, mean, only able to use it in a year or so. Yeah, and like even just when I was 
choosing which sessions to watch, I was like looking through the list of stuff and I was like, where are all the interesting sessions? Like there, there's Swift UI, which is interesting this year. There's Catalyst, which I'm vaguely interested in more. Like how can I inform myself on, to shit on it more? And then there's <laughs> like, <laughs> and then there's the Apple Silicon stuff. And then everything else is just like main maintenance updates. Yeah. <laughs> it's like normally there's like, a ton of metal shit that I don't understand. There's a bunch of core ML shit I don't understand. Come on, there's a there's couple a bunch of those. There are a couple of metal sessions. Not nearly as much as previous years. Could be, could be. Uh, but it, it, it's felt that it had enough of them that I was like, okay, I'll ignore this section. I can focus on that section. A uh, couple of topics that I like they meant they brought up because they, these, these are things that they ship throughout iOS 13. Like, they have now big session about how to design for pointer-based interaction on an iPad, uh, yeah. whether you like this idea on the iPad or not. Uh, same thing for keyboard. Like they, they are slowly but surely kind of reminding you some of the new shit that you should have been doing and that maybe now you have a compelling reason to do so now that Apple is shipping hardware that can make great advantage, take great advantage of those functionality. I think Catalyst is a more compelling reason than the trackpad and shit but whatever okay uh, i guess what i'm saying is i agree with you that macalis is more compelling but it is uh higher my list of compelling things than it is to yours should we talk a little bit about like a wwc format before we close out the show like how it was this year different from previous years uh yes i was not planning to do so but i think we should you're correct uh let me start i really really enjoyed the new format with the small caveat that a i'm happy to get a lot of content and not be required not it to be take an hour to do so uh though we spent nearly two hours talking about four <laughs> sessions um but come on there was a couple a lot of opinions around those sessions too uh but yeah uh though so it's kind of like kind of a small oxymoron in more or less the same sentence but uh but those sessions are tightly packed yeah. Like, uh, my sessions were like 20 minutes each, 25 minutes each, I think at most. And I was like, oh my God, like, you need to pause a couple of times to digest what they say, maybe rewind, rewatch some stuff. Uh, so while the production quality is like way higher, mainly because it is produced to be a recording and not to entertain people and like you entertain a room full of people, uh, I do like the concisiveness of them, but wow, they more or less took the same content they do in an hour and put it in most of the sessions in 30 minutes. So expect yep. to uh, maybe play them at one uh, at 0 0.5 and not at 2x from where you used to be. Uh, another thing I do like is to keep some of the joyfulness and the kind of the, the personality that you see from uh, the presenters. Some of them add literally weird shit on their desk while presenting. <laughs> uh, I know there was one engineer that was playing with a Rubik cube throughout the session. And it's weird because sometimes they, they, they do those bulleted lists to talk to you about either the topics and literally the person like the it was a blurred video of the person playing with the Rubik cube. <laughs> so, so 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 the engineer is literally talking and they're like, okay we'll talk about this and then that that and then you see the click, 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 and you hear it's like okay i'm, I'm not trying to be able to concentrate so that was a funny yeah. one uh there was a couple of other like where they had uh funny stuff one of the car plays uh one the car play one uh 
there were two engineers, the main engineer that was kind of doing this, uh, like, uh, Russian dolls of presentation. Uh, so the main one, uh, he was always making joke about like, oh, we need, uh, now I forget them, but they were all like car related. So like, uh, we need to embark on a journey. We need to go on a road trip on like the new functionality. It was like so fun, but so cheesy at the same time. Cool. Uh, yeah, I really like the new format. Uh, it is a little bit dense. I think that's not really an issue if you're just watching them for the fun of watching them. If you're trying to take notes, though, it's kind of frustrating. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, luckily, there is a transcript mode and there is the code copy uh, mode mm, in the true. app. So transcript lets you just like see the entire transcript and you can tap anywhere on the transcript to jump to that timestamp, which is really cool. Uh, unfortunately, that entire view hates it if you're using split view on an ipad and you have the text keyboard up on the other screen because it dismisses the keyboard randomly uh all the time uh so that was unfortunate for me uh the code copy section just gives you like copyable code samples for everything that is shown on a slide which is really cool uh so that was nice although i'm not really actively developing anything so i couldn't really make use of that but it was a cool feature to see nonetheless uh i appreciated the daily recap videos with uh, serenity caldwell oh they were I thought those were really they were really good they were really well made the only thing that i maybe think is a bad decision is putting them on the main apple youtube channel uh i think a lot of this stuff is going to go over regular consumers heads and it doesn't really mean anything to that to them the only people that are really going to care about like what's coming up on day four of wdc is developers and they're already consuming your content through the developer app or through the website and i i wouldn't mind so much if apple did like a lot of other companies and had an apple developer channel and they put it there on youtube uh, and they could probably put all their sessions there too um but Putting it on the main channel is just like, I mean, at least they have content comments disabled, but like it's going to confuse people more than anything else. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty good WDC. I haven't watched that many sessions. Uh, one session I do want to call out as being, um, interesting to me is, uh, as someone who hasn't really had an Xcode install on my computer recently. Um, there was a session that was telling you how to get set up to use Swift UI in Swift Playgrounds on the iPad, uh, which is great because previously you had to resort to shady tutorials uh, a little bit everywhere on the web. And now there is an official video from Apple telling you exactly how to do it. So now you can make Swift UI views in Swift Playgrounds and be more productive with code on your iPad, uh, which is always a good thing. It's not quite Xcode for iPad yet, Fingers crossed. I do have one recommendation regarding Swift UI. And if you want to have uh, non-Apple content, uh, the website called Hacking with Swift by uh, Paul Hudson is amazing. They have books, they have a blog, they have forums. Uh, but uh, Paul was making a lot of great content. I could include also a link into in the show notes about a video he did on youtube that is an hour 30 minutes about all the new functionality that is in swift ui for this year uh so that's where i didn't watch it fully but that's where i learned for example that there are like map kit links to swift ui so you don't need to resort to the like the ui host view controller to uh, embed uh, map content because i was looking at map contents recently for a personal project hmm who will get to the end of their personal project first uh we'll see 
We'll see. We could make it a challenge. It's probably you. Oh, I think I've played it uh, a bit during, uh, I think, last month or so and still sleeping on this laptop. So we'll see. <laughs> is that it? Uh, it is it. All right. If you want to find show notes for this episode, you can find them at limitlesspossibility.net slash 140. You can also find all of our back catalog at at limitlesspossibility.net. The show is on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. Or you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Ukadivie at Lukonosh. That's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.